1: This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called The Living Church of the Living King, looking at the beautiful and glorious picture of Jesus Christ as the living one that gives our call to the church. To hear all of the messages in this series, Please visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com And now... Let's open God's word to see what he has for us today. One of my favorite television shows is the Andy Griffith Show. There's one episode where there is a grifter who comes to kind of deceive Aunt B. It leads to all manner of work for Andy, and this man seems to have convinced Aunt B that he's going to marry her. Andy decides that he's going to have a conversation with this grifter and make him make good on his word or leave. And so very strategically, he decides that the conversation is going to take place while he is cleaning his gun. (laughs) There's an implied threat in the cleaning of the gun. Nothing needs to be spoken. He just cleans it. He lets this grifter know that Andy is the man with the gun. And this introduction serves a number of different purposes. It reminds us that Jesus is the one with the sword. Jesus is the king with the sword. This means that there are genuine consequences for disobedience, for theological and moral compromise. Verse 16 says this very clear. If the church doesn't repent, if those who have given themselves to false teaching, into sexual immorality, into food sacrifice to idols, if they don't repent, Jesus says, I'm going to come against you with this two-edged sword. The two-edged sword, of course, comes from his mouth, we're told in Revelation chapter 1, and speaks to us of the incredible power of the word of God. If Christ, if Christ comes and we are unrepentant and in sin, we experience the sword. You see, discipline, the discipline of Christ is not something that you can avoid except by repentance and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus. This is why the church actually comes to those who are caught in a continual and an open sin who are persevering in unrepentance and they say lovingly, dear brother, dear sister, it's time for you to stop this. Because we know that Jesus is the one with the two-edged sword. And we don't want him to use it against us. We don't want him to come against us because of our unrepentance and unrighteousness. And so we want to repent of sin. The fact that Jesus is the king with the sword also can provide a great deal of comfort because it reminds us who is the one with authority. As I mentioned in the introduction, the, the, the city of Pergamum was a capital city in the province of Asia. And as such, it was given a particular responsibility. It was a city whose governing council could put people to death. The symbol of this was that the city bore the sword. The sword. This was a city that could put people to death signified by the sword. But the Lord Jesus is the one who has a sword. He's more potent, more powerful than the city of Pergamum. And for those who found themselves in Jesus in the town of Pergamum, they could rest in the fact that they were safe because of his power. The same is true for you. If you, in repentance and faith, have given yourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are safe. Because no one and nothing has the potency or the power of our Savior. And you're safe in his care. You're safe in his protection. Nothing will ever harm you. And for those of us who, through repentance and faith, have trusted in the work that Christ finished at the cross, the fact that he's the one that has the two-edged sword should be a comfort to us. This is the way that Jesus introduces himself. This is the introduction in the letter. And the letter then has three different parts. It first talks about a demonic dwelling. It second talks about some doctrinal delinquency. And and at the end, it talks about a detailed deliverance. So let's start up talking about this demonic dwelling. Verse 13 contains with it some of the intensity of this letter. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This is intense. This verse, verse 13, starts talking about how this is where the throne of Satan is. The end of verse 13 says, This is where Satan dwells. Again, Pergamum is not a place that would top a list of places to raise Christian children. What does it mean that this is the place where the throne of Satan was? What does it mean that this is the place where Satan dwells? Well, I mean, none of us can know for sure. It may be that this church understood instinctively what it was that Jesus was communicating in this message. There are a few different things that might be the case. This might be termed the place where where Satan's throne is, a reference to, to power, because this was the place where the first temple dedicated to emperor worship was. It may be that this reference to this power might might be a reference to the fact that the emperors were the ones who sat on the throne and the fact that they were worshiped here indicates that this is a place where the throne of Satan was. It might be a reference to a specific temple, the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius, you see, was a snake deity. He was called a savior. He was signified in sculptures as a snake. And his temple in the town of Pergamum is one that seems to me to be quite disturbing. Non poisonous snakes littered the floor of this temple, and and what people believed is that if you wanted to be healed, what you needed to do was go to the temple of Asclepius and lay down and allow the snakes to crawl over you. And if you did that, it was said that this snake deity would heal you. Perhaps this is the reference to the temple or the to the throne of Satan. It could be a reference to Satan himself. You see, the enemy is real. The enemy of God's people is real. And this may have simply been the place of his dwelling. You see, the devil is limited and can only be in one place at once. This is different from the Lord God who is omnipresent. One of the things that you and I might be tempted to believe is that the Lord and the devil, that the good of God And the evil that he opposes are two equal and opposite forces. This is simply untrue. God is far greater than any enemy that stands against him. Any enemy that seeks to stand against God is limited, is limited spatially, can only be in one place at one time is limited mentally, does not know everything, is limited temporally, is held captive by time. Whereas God is omnipresent in all places. God is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows all things. God is not captive to time. Again, this should be a great comfort. The fact that God is so much greater than any enemy of the Lord gives you comfort and should drive us to want to run to Him. It's a reminder of what it is that we sing when we sing the song, A Mighty Fortress. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Don't be afraid if you belong to God because any that stand against him cannot cannot oppose him he is much greater and you're safe when you belong to him in any case the church in pergamum dwells in the place of demons however that signified and one of the evidences of this dwelling in the place where satan dwells was the persecution that this church was facing we're given specific results of this persecution antipas god's faithful witness was killed among them Where Satan dwelt. It may be that Antipas was the pastor of this church in Pergamum. In any case, he was someone who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and witnessed to the gospel. You see, this word witness in Greek is the word martus. Just hearing that, you might realize that this is the word from which we get the word martyr. A martyr is one who is a witness to the Lord God. A martyr is one who is a witness to the truth of the gospel. And the way that the church has come to understand martyrdom is to say, hey, one who is a martyr is one who has witnessed to the truth of the gospel up to and through the point of death. And one of those witnesses was Antipas, the faithful witness of the Lord. You know, at every time and in every generation, God has his faithful witnesses. God has those who continue to testify to the truth of Christ and his ways and his word, even at the cost of their very lives. You know, in the United States right now, there's, no, there's very little chance that you might have to suffer and die for your faith. There are some instances or occurrences where it has happened. But you see, the last hundred years has been the year where the most people have died for the cause of the gospel, the last hundred years. It's across the globe where people are facing regular, sustained opposition for trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, not just at this church in Pergamum, right now, across the globe, in places where where governments or groups of, of people oppose the message of the gospel, people die. They bear witness. They are martyrs to the very end. And one of the things that, I I don't know how this strikes you, but this hits me like a ton of bricks when I read verse 13 is this. Yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. I want you to notice the use of the word my. The people in Pergamum, when, when faced with this opposition, held fast to the name of God, to my name, Christ says. It's a reminder that the faith that they held to was not their faith. It was, was the faith of Christ Jesus, to my faith. And then this is what really hits me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Aren't you struck by the intimacy of that statement? Jesus is talking about this one who has been faithful to the point of death. And he says, that one, Antipas, that one was mine. That one was my witness. Let me tell you this morning that having Jesus say, you know what? Derek Bukema was my witness. That's more valuable to me than anything else. That's something that I would prize more than anything else in the whole world. To have Christ say, that one, that one was my way. Isn't that beautiful?
0: You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com.
1: And now more from Pastor Derek in our series called The Living Church of the Living King. Looking at the beautiful and glorious picture of Jesus Christ as the living one that gives our call to the church. Isn't it amazing to belong to Jesus? Isn't it astounding to be called his own? Isn't it incredible that this one who has power over all of the governments of the world, isn't it astounding that he will condescend to say, You are mine? And is it, not, is it not the most valuable thing in the world to, to belong to him and to know that there is no opposition that this world might offer that can compare with belonging to Jesus? Belonging to Jesus is enough. This was a church that was faithful on to death on the part of Antipas, faithful in the midst of all manner of opposition, even in the place where demons dwelt, where the devil had his dwelling verse 14 tells us that sadly, Christ Jesus has a few things against this church. Let me read verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, you might remember that these teachings of the Nicolaitans was referenced in verse 6 in the letter to the church in Ephesus. One of, the things that, one of the things that was praised, praiseworthy about the church in Ephesus, is that they were holding fast against this very same teaching. The problem for the church in Ephesus was that they were remaining doctrinally pure while failing to be loving. The problem for this church in Pergamum is that they were failing to be doctrinally pure. They were listening to the words of false teachers. There were some... This this false teacher, Balaam, it's a reference to the Old Testament. And and the Nicolaitans, there were some who were coming in and encouraging the church, hey, you can offer sacrifices to idols. You can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Hey, you can engage in sexual immorality. It's not a big deal. And what Jesus says to the church is, it is a big deal. And I have against you the fact that you are giving into this teaching. There's a reference to Balaam. You probably remember the story of Balaam. It's recorded in Numbers 22 to 24. Balaam was somebody that the king Balak hired to try to speak words of cursing against the people of Israel, but the Lord would not allow him to speak words of cursing, and instead, he spoke only words of blessing. But then in Numbers 25, we're told that the people of Israel started engaging in sexual immorality. And in Numbers chapter 31, we're told that that Balaam consulted with the king Balak and encouraged him, just send Send some women of of Moab into the people of Israel and encourage them to engage in sexual immorality. And so, while they would not be cursed, they nonetheless started to destroy themselves by giving themselves to sexual immorality and then to idolatry. And what Revelation chapter 2 in this letter to the church in Pergamum is saying is that this church was doing the same sort of thing. They had stood up in the face of incredible opposition, but then there was some doctrinal delinquency. They allowed false teachers in their midst, they started studying their materials. They started thinking, well, maybe it's not so bad if we act a little bit like the world, if we engage in the same practices that they do, if we go to the same festivals, if we have the same sexual practices as the world, if we participate in rituals of the city like the rest of the world, maybe that's not such a bad thing Is what church, some in the church were starting to believe. And Jesus comes and says, stop that. I have this against you. Don't do that. This is the second astounding thing about the church in Pergamum. There is such incredible opposition that some are dying for the sake of the gospel. And in that same church, there are some that are saying, yeah, but it's not a big deal if we start operating like the people around us, is it? It's not such a big deal if we give ourselves to sexual immorality. It's not such a big deal if we eat food sacrificed to idols. This isn't such a big deal, is it? I mean, some of these Christian teachers tell us that this isn't a problem. If these are Christian teachers, I mean, then why not not listen to what it is that they're saying? I want to tell you this morning that in the church, in the United States, today, there is the same thing that's taking place. In the church in Illinois, today, there is the same thing that is taking place. In the church in Orland Park, today, there may be the same thing taking place. You see, one of the sad things is that in each generation, there are false teachers that operate and in our midst, and the, the general way of operating is to say, well, I don't think it's such a big deal if you operate in these sorts of ways. I don't know if the scriptures are as clear as, as you think that they might be as it relates to these things. You know, it's not, it's not so damaging if you just give yourself to some of the practices of the surrounding world. You know what? Why not just have some fun? Why not just be who you want to be? Why not just engage in these things? Don't do it. Can I plead with you this morning? Don't listen to somebody that tells you to engage in sexual immorality. Can I tell you this morning that it's a big deal? The scriptures say that any other sin is committed outside of the body. But sexual sin, it's committed inside the body. This is the way that the scriptures speak of it. That means that it can very quickly, very easily become a sin of identity. A sin that we identify ourselves by and with and through. Let me tell you that there is a prevalence of sexually illicit material that exists now that, that's more than any other time in history. You can access sexually immoral material easier, quicker than any other time in history. At every time in history, this is a temptation. Now there is this unique challenge that it is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And some people will say, "Well, you know what, everybody does it. It's not a big deal. Or God, God, doesn't, God doesn't care if you do this. That's a lie. Or some people will say, you know what, it's a good thing for you to give yourself to this. That's a lie. Jesus says, I have you, I have this against you that you're believing these false things and that you're giving yourself to sexual immorality. And there is one response, and it's in verse 16. Therefore, repent, To all of us who may be caught in some manner or measure of sexual immorality, we're called by verse 16 to repent of that right now. And Jesus says that the stakes are high. If you will not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. One of the things that, um, one of the things that can be popular right now. Maybe you've seen this. this is, there are two ways of thinking about this, right? Maybe three. So there, there is a legalism that says, hey, you have to be a perfect person in order for God to receive or accept you. So you better, you better be perfect or else God won't accept you. There's another kind of teaching that exists in the church that says this. Hey, listen, you're a mess, I'm a mess, we're all a mess, and God's okay with that. You sin, I sin, we all God's okay with that. Here's what the teaching of Scripture says. It is a big deal when we engage in sin. And in fact, the, the God, God, our Father, won't, won't accept us unless we are perfect. So what does that mean? It means trust Christ. It means repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, and re- walk away from your sin. Not be perfect in order to be accepted by God. Not, it's not a big deal if you sin. It is a big deal. And that's what Christ accomplished for you at the cross. He paid for all of your sin. He rose again from the dead to give you justification. And now he calls you to live holy lives. And that's what he's saying to the church in Pergamum. Repent from your sin. And then he details the way that this deliverance can look. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now this is a mysterious end to this letter. A very mysterious end. If you overcome, if you conquer, you will receive hidden manna and a white stone. There's all manner of confusion about what it is that this might mean. People talk about how there were some, some, uh, some traditions at this time that said that after the fall of the temple that the Lord had hidden the manna and that he was going to bring it back when he returned again when the Messiah came. There's some people who say, well, you know what? In, in the New Testament, there is this, there's this connection that's frequently made between talking about manna and then talking about the Lord's Supper. And so what this may be a reference to is, is the, the marriage feast of the Lamb, which will be yours when you are in glory. And almost certainly, almost certainly, these two things combined tell us about the promise of the marriage feast of the Lamb, which is held out to each of us, to each of us that, that trusts in Christ Jesus and then dies. And then there's this language of the white stone. What's that about? I'll give a white stone with a name written on it. Here, there's all sorts of speculation again. In the courts, in the Roman courts at this time, if, if you were on trial and you were, uh, you were judged innocent, you'd be given a white stone. You'd be given a black stone if you were judged guilty. And so it may be that this speaks of the innocence of all of those that trust in the Lord Jesus. At this time in Pergamum, if you wanted to gain entrance into one of the great feasts, one of the great pagan feasts, you had to secure a white stone given by the city government. And if you handed that to the guards who were put in place, you could enter in and you could feast with all of those who were a part of the city of Pergamum. It may be, therefore, that this white stone is a reference to the fact that you who die in Christ Jesus will live and reign and feast with him forever. And then there's this I love a name written on it. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'll tell you what, I'm not sure what it is that that means. But let me tell you one story in conclusion. I was in college and I was talking with a group of friends. One of my friends, Brian Rudolph, was his name. He asked us, he's like, What's your favorite section of Scripture? And we all shared a favorite section of Scripture. And he said, You know what mine is? My favorite part of Scripture is Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He says, did you know that, that Jesus writes this letter to the church in Pergamum and he gives a really specific promise. He promises that if you overcome that you will receive a white stone with a name written on it that's, that's known only to you. He's like, I gotta tell you I don't know exactly what that means but that seems to me to be so incredibly beautiful that that is the thing that I cannot wait for. And he said, and actually I have a name that I pray that God would give me. He's like, and I, I talked to God in prayer and I've asked him if the name written on my stone can be This thing that I'm asking him for. That strikes me as really beautiful. Taking God at his word and saying, God, how about this name? In the scriptures, God has this habit of giving new names to people at really important times.
0: You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life, Visit us today at GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again,
1: that's GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, may God bless you.